G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Marriage. The idea either freaks you out or gets you really excited. It can be a beautiful thing, we know. We also know it doesn't always work out. Getting divorced can be messy. So what about those who go through it young? Like, what's it like to get divorced in your 20s? We're going to be speaking about this later. Also, Queensland has become the first state to introduce pill testing. We'll take you through that. But first... I would prefer to tell someone that I'm addicted to meth. I would prefer to tell somebody that I was an alcoholic. It's a thing people don't like. On Triple J. Hey, just a warning. We're about to discuss eating disorders in quite a bit of detail. So if you think you might be triggered by this, might be a good idea to switch off for the next 10 minutes. More than a million Australians are estimated to have an eating disorder. Around the world, experts think one in five young people go through this. We talk about it. The thing is, access to support is still a huge problem. Governments have poured money in, but it's not enough to address this massive issue. And the families struggling with it every day have had enough. They're speaking out. They're demanding action. ABC Four Corners reporter Grace Tobin has been looking into this. She has a story on Four Corners tonight and she joins me now. Hey, Grace, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you. Do you think Australians realise how big of a problem eating disorders are in society? Look, I think on one front, yes, because a million Australians have one, which is 4 to 5% of the population. So obviously there's a lot of people living in silence, in secret uh, and, and battling this every day. On the other hand, I think no, that people do not understand how big of an issue this is. I'll admit I did not realize until looking into this story how bad it was and just the variety of different eating disorders uh, and the lack of help, not just in regional areas, which we definitely do look into, but even in major cities. It's crazy, right? And it feels like there's still, even though, I mean, on Hack, we talk about it a lot, that there's still this stigma around eating disorders. Like there was one person you spoke to who said, I'd rather say I'm addicted to meth. Yeah, than have an eating disorder. I know, and it it is crazy that that is still the situation. I mean, I remember going through school and thinking it was a big issue then. Uh, it's an even bigger issue now, particularly since the pandemic cases have just exploded. There's a lot of people who are going through this. And yet, even within the health system, I mean, some of the comments that people told us about that say, nurses and doctors have made, their GPs have made. There's clearly a real lack of training in this area, even in medical school. And so that lack of understanding within society is also within the health system. And so it makes it really difficult for people to, I guess, come forward for treatment. And then when they do, they're not really understood. And to be clear, young Australians are dying. Absolutely. And, you know, I definitely didn't realise that eating disorders are one of the most deadly mental illnesses of all. And I mean, that's saying something. I think the only other mental illness that kind of outranks it as such is uh, drug addiction. So we're talking, you know, it is a life and death situation. People often will die of suicide because of the mental illness side of things. Otherwise, it might be medical complications based on the physical aspects of the illness. You've been speaking to young people affected, also their families, their parents especially. What are they telling you? 
I mean, they're desperate, to be honest. They're really in such a difficult position. They're just kind of living day by day. The ones that feature in the program tonight, there's a 23-year-old called Sarah who I just have really fallen in love with as far as she is just such a strong, determined young woman, but she has these literal demons in her head that make it almost impossible for her to eat. So she has anorexia nervosa and she's been fighting this for 10 years now and it's just been this rotating door of hospital admissions. Um, We followed her when she was discharged from a hospital in Melbourne in January, so just last month, and she returned home to a country town where she lives with her mum. She's um, discharged into the care of her local GP. Uh, You know, as I said, most GPs don't know a lot about eating disorders, so she's feeling very lonely right now. She's severely underweight, and she really is the illustration of the gap in the system. She's considered too sick for hospital because they wanted her to leave because she'd done the kind of 12 weeks there. And she's not sick enough, I suppose, or she's too underweight to access outpatient programs. So she's just left in this hole by herself with her mum trying to feed her. And that's kind of what you see in the program tonight is, you know, this observational sort of documentary with her um, just showing how extremely difficult it is. And part of Sarah's struggle was her saying that a lot of people just don't understand what she's going through. Let's have a little listen to what she had to say. So many times I've been told to just go eat a burger or to not worry about the calories or anything that it is in food. It's just so much more than that. If it was just as simple as eating, everyone would be better. No one would be suffering with an eating disorder. There's so much guilt and shame and anxiety around it. And Grace, speaking to Sarah, did you get this real sense that she just wanted to get better and get help? She definitely wants to get better and that was something that I asked her. But you can see the internal conflict that she goes through, particularly after eating, that she knows she has to gain weight. She wants to gain weight because that will make her better, but she can't. Like it's just this mental illness is so strong within her that, yeah, she explains that conflict. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ABC Four Corners reporter Grace Tobin about a big story into eating disorders that she's covering. Grace, it sounds like there's not enough psychological support is what families are telling you as well, that there's a lot of focus on often the physical support when people are in hospital, getting them to eat but not so much the factors behind it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's been a really long road to the point of eating disorders being acknowledged as a mental illness that I think there's, you know, surveys that show that I think it's like one in four Australians think that eating disorders are just something that affect young, vain women and that they could just get over it really easily. Discover the best new music Um, on Triple J. And this idea that it's a mental illness is still quite new, I think. And it shouldn't be because it's so obvious when you spend time with these people that that is what it is. And yet the support services aren't there to actually help them through the mental health side of it. What's the government had to say about this, Grace? Because people might remember that the former government made big announcement about investing millions of dollars into residential centres and those kinds of things. What is this Labor government said? 
Well, basically, when I interviewed the Federal Health Minister, Mark Butler, it was a bit of an acceptance, I think, on his part. He was really just accepting everything that I said, that yes, he admitted this is a crisis, that yes, they do need more services, and that is across the entire system, that they're, you know, reviewing different aspects of this. He sort of praised the former government for announcing the funding into these residential care facilities. Right now in Australia, there's only one uh, in Queensland where you can actually go to with an eating disorder. It's dedicated to treating you in a kind of holistic way. So we actually visited there and, um, you know, spoke with patients who were there going through this themselves. It seems like a fantastic facility. It's run by the Butterfly Foundation, uh, but there's only one and the wait list is huge. And so the federal government is building six more, but to be honest, it's they're not even close to opening. Mm. So there's been delays, I guess they're saying, through the pandemic, uh, but we're in the crisis right now. And so that would be a very easy way to try and help people through this if, if there were more facilities, but it's just kind of delayed and lagging behind at this point. Grace, what about research into eating disorders? Is there much going on in that space across the country? Look, unfortunately not. There has been some new research in recent years that shows that actually eating disorders can be genetic. And so some people are predisposed to getting an eating disorder. That's been quite an amazing breakthrough in itself. Unfortunately, the situation is with eating disorders, they only receive a tiny fraction of research funding compared to other mental illnesses. So to put that in perspective, for example, depression, it's almost $20 per affected person. Schizophrenia is $200 per affected person. Eating disorders are $1.70. Wow. So it's really, really far down the list of where the priorities are. And if there was more research funding, you would think, okay, well, there's probably going to be more likelihood of new treatments as well. Look, it's dark, but it's real. ABC Four Corners reporter Grace Tobin, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thank you, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And you can catch Grace's story on Four Corners on ABC iView. You can also read her article on ABC News Online. And remember, if you or someone you know needs help with an eating disorder, you can always contact the Butterfly Foundation on 1800 334673 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hack. They're going to consume that drug and it could do them serious harm or result in a loss of life. Doing this is a better outcome. On Triple J. So there was a big announcement over the weekend about pill testing. Queensland is jumping on board, joining the ACT, and many health officials we know have been calling for pill testing for years. Coroners have also recommended it after deaths linked to drugs at music festivals. So this is a really significant step. How's it going to work? We'll be speaking with an expert in a bit, but for now, here's Angel Parsons to explain exactly what was announced. We know people are dying from the use of these drugs. We owe it to them and their families to do everything we can to minimise that harm. After years of advocacy for governments to introduce pill testing at festivals, we've seen a pretty major step here in Queensland in the last few days. The evidence is clear. It makes a difference. This is Queensland's Health Minister Yvette Dar announcing the state will bring in pill testing. It is about time that jurisdictions across this country realise that tackling the scourge of drugs and harm minimisation, we have to be willing to recognise the evidence that is available globally. 
So we've seen some success in this space out of Canberra, most recently after they set up a fixed pill testing service in July last year. Initially as a six-month trial, that's now been extended until at least August. Dr David Caldicott, the medical lead on that trial, says it saved lives. It encourages young people to have a conversation rather than to be fearful about seeking help. Now, we don't know exactly when this trial will be up and running in Queensland. The health minister flagged they're going to try to find a provider who wants to run things within the next six months. But Yvette Darth has said it could involve a fixed site in Brizzy and mobile sites. And some health bodies have already come out and said it's a really good move. Here's Australian Medical Association Queensland President Maria Bolton. Less people overdosing and if we have less people dying, absolutely, that would put less pressure on the health system. But, of course, not everyone's happy. Queensland's Deputy Opposition Leader Jared Blay says it sends the wrong message. There is no safe way to take a drug, whether it is at a music festival, in someone's backyard, in someone's house. There's the other side to all of this, though, that pill testing does actually give us information about what is going around. When we find something new on the black market uh, that people are using, we can put alerts out there showing what that pill looks like and how dangerous it is and what it contains to, again, change behaviour and ensure that people are not taking unnecessary risks. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that update. Want to find out more? We've got with us now Rebecca Lang from the Queensland Network of Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies. Hey, Rebecca, thanks for joining us on Hack. Yeah, no worries, Dave. Good to be here. How would this pill testing work, do we know? Is it just about telling people what's in the drugs or is it more substantial than that? Yes, it's a lot more substantial than that. Uh, so we, so the, the you know, the, some of the um, details of how this particular model will roll out are yet to be determined. But the reality is, this is an intervention that's been available in Europe for over twenty years. So we know what it will kind of it'll it'll sound a little bit like. People bring a substance to either a fixed site or into a festival site, and they leave a sample of their substance, and they get something like a raffle ticket, and then they go away and they come back. Uh, depending on the type of machinery that's doing the analysis and uh, how uh, busy the service is. It could be as short as 45 minutes or it could be a number of hours later or for a fixed site, maybe even the next day that they come back uh, and they speak with a uh, experienced harm reduction professional about their substance use. So it's really about, um, you know, how what did they think they have? How did they, how are they intending to use it? Um, do they have any other kind of... Um, medications that they're on because some substance use is contraindicated with medications um, do they have any questions about substance use uh, and then towards the end of the intervention then they kind of let know whether the substance was as they had kind of thought it was or whether um, the analysis had identified that it was something else um, so one of the things that's really useful about this type of intervention is that often people don't have the opportunity to talk to someone who knows the uh, kind of most likely risks that you'd be taking with particular substances. Uh, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. So what um, a lot of the evaluations find is that once people have an opportunity to talk about their substance use, they're actually, they've got heaps of things they want to talk about. Interesting. So it sounds like it will be a really personalised um, service to taking into consideration people's circumstances and like you say, their potential health risks. Do we know when it's going to be up and running? 
Uh, well, the Minister on Saturday said uh, she hopes to have identified a provider within the next six months, which is really great. Um, there's not a huge market for this, obviously, in Australia. We um, we have the, the service that's running out of the ACT and then there's a, a, some local people who are kind of here in Queensland have been um, preparing for th this eventuality because, you know, once you get across the idea of the value of these services, it becomes um, a matter of when we implement them, not if. Um, and I think the other thing that got government across the line with this was the value of that early warning system, you know, the... Um, Opposition leader says that no drug use is safe and the the no one is saying that, you know, but isn't it better to have some reality in the harms and the, the potential harms and the risks that we're letting people know because we've got evidence that backs that up rather than guessing what might be in the supply. And looking at the ACT's trial, is it clear that, um, you know, young people especially are interested in knowing what's in their drugs? Yeah, absolutely. The, the idea that there's, a, there's this bit of a myth that's a um, persistent myth that drug people who use illicit drugs are indifferent or reckless when it comes to their own health and well-being. Um, and, you know, we know that that's not the case, particularly amongst um, young people who may be experimenting with uh, drugs like cocaine or MDMA uh, or even amphetamines in um, nighttime entertainment precincts or in um, festival settings. So, you know, these are often young people who are otherwise um, very health conscious. Uh, and so um, when you offer people the opportunity to protect their health when it comes to their substance use, they'll take that opportunity for the most part. All right. We'll, we'll definitely keep checking in with you as this um, comes closer to fruition. We appreciate your time. Rebecca Lang from the Queensland Network of Alcohol and Drug Agencies. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Anytime. Hack. We weren't a married couple anymore. We were just two people living in the same house. On Triple J. Breakups. They suck, right? So imagine if you needed lawyers, documents, and a whole lot of money to break up. It's called divorce. You may have heard of it. No, we all know about divorce, of course. Most of you, some of you might have divorced parents. It can be messy and traumatic. We usually associate it with older people, but what's it like getting divorced in your 20s? Hey, if this is you, hit me up. I want to know why did you get divorced young? Was it traumatic? You can send a message, 0439757555. In a bit, we're going to speak with a divorce lawyer. So if you've got some questions, flick them through. I'll put it to him. Also about de facto splits, because that's interesting as well. First, though, here's April McLennan, who's been speaking with young divorcees about their experiences. We're married for about two years before I kind of started going, oh, like, we just kind of turned into friends that slept in the same bed, like, there was not a lot of intimacy or anything like that. So I did a bit of soul-searching within myself, probably came to the conclusion that maybe my sexuality had something to do with it. I want you to meet 28-year-old Gloria Klein from Launceston in northern Tassie. She fell in love when she was 18 years old, and by the time she was 24, they were married. Gloria says she identified as bisexual and her husband knew this. But after entering the heterosexual relationship, she had the realisation that she was actually gay. Once you started having questions about, you know, is this what I want? Do I want to be in this relationship? Were you ever, I guess, like a bit worried about getting divorced so young? Being a divorcee at 26, 27 was probably not how I'd envisioned it. The thought definitely crossed my mind, especially... Uh, potentially dating, like dating again in the future. I was quite anxious about that for a long time, just about having that conversation about going, oh yeah, you know, I was married. 
Okay, so you know when you're dating someone and you're just not vibing them, but you're hesitant to break up with them because maybe you're just hangry or self-sabotaging or super hormonal and you'll be digging them again next week. Well, imagine having those feelings, but you're locked into a marriage. You can't just flick your significant other a let's be friends text. Clinical psychologist Gemma Cribb says there's actually heaps of reasons why people stay in marriages, like embarrassment, shame or fear of failure. I think definitely there is a stigma that marriage should be forever and it's a stigma that's not only in Hollywood movies and in all the fairy tales that we've grown up with. It's also in the vows themselves. You literally have to say till death do us part. And I think when you're a young person in your 20s, um, it feels really bad to have said those vows and then you know within a a bunch of years to have to go back on those vows and go no I'm not happy. Gemma says while it's good to have a crack at fixing your marriage if things really aren't working it's important to look after yourself and get out. Staying in an unhappy marriage isn't a badge of honour. Having relationship difficulties and being unhappy and lonely within a relationship can have really bad mental health consequences. Relationship disharmony is stressful at least and anxiety provoking or depressing at most. Some people even get post-traumatic stress disorder from staying in abusive relationships and having awful experiences with their spouses. Despite her anxieties, Gloria made the decision to get divorced. It can be very confronting and very overwhelming, especially if it's been a long relationship, like I was looking at eight years, that I was potentially walking away from. You go through all the thoughts of what if it's not right, what if this is just a phase, what if I you know, make this decision and then regret it for the rest of my life. But I don't know if it scares you and excites you at the same time, it's something you should probably do. No, it's certainly stressful. I don't think uh, what age you are when you go through a divorce ever changes that. Yeah, it's quite a stressful time regardless, but once it's over, it's quite a weight off the shoulders. Ben Childs has a somewhat similar experience to Gloria. He got engaged when he was 23 and married at 25. Who knew standing in front of all your close friends and family to make a lifelong commitment doesn't actually prevent you from having a marriage breakdown? Yeah, and when you got to that point where you're like, this isn't viable, this isn't working, were there any hesitations to end that just because, you know, you're getting divorced so young. Well, I think in the back of your mind, there's always that little bit of hesitation there that, you know, perhaps people might look down upon you because you didn't stick it out because you are already divorced at that age. So I think, yeah, it uh, certainly plays in your mind a little bit, but at the end of the day, you've got to look out for yourself and your own happiness. You can't uh, be responsible for somebody else's. Okay, so if you're having relationship distress and you're thinking about leaving, but you're embarrassed or feel like a bit of a failure, What should you do? Well, Gemma reckons it helps to write in a journal and note down all the things you've tried to do to make it work. Get some professional advice and read some self-help books. What you'll find is those tips will either work and things will improve or they won't work. And then once you've recorded all these attempts that you've tried and all these things that you've done to try and improve the relationship, it's easier to be less judgmental and hard on yourself and think that it's a failure to end the relationship because you can see that you've tried everything possible. It's easy to give yourself permission to leave. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan there. A few of you are messaging in. Someone says, I think the most useful question is why do you get married so young? Always good to hear people getting divorced. It's not a decision anyone makes lightly. It's usually the right one. Another person, Jazz from Ashfield, says, I'm 30 and currently separated from my wife of five years, waiting to divorce. 
using dating apps when you're 30 and have already been married is really hard. That's interesting. We've got Mitch on the line. Mitch, you've been through a divorce. You were in your mid-20s. What was it like? Um, it was definitely interesting, like um, coming back into the world of dating and having three children. So it was a terrifying thing. Yeah, and was it a, a big process? Did you think it would be that intense? Um, I think more it was like the family side of things, their process, because they didn't really support or agree with what what the uh, breakup was. So that was probably the hardest thing. But in, yeah, it, was, it wasn't too bad, I guess. Well, that's interesting. Thank you so much for calling in with your experience, Mitch. Appreciate that. I want to dive into this more now with an expert. Michael Tice is a divorce lawyer and he's with us now. Hey, Michael, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for asking me on. Have you had to deal with a few young divorces in your work? Uh, I've been doing it for uh, about 30 years. So uh, a few, yes, definitely. And can divorces be pretty straightforward? I mean, there's this idea out there that they're always dragging. Is that true? No. Most people are able to resolve matters between them um, pretty uh, quickly and amicably. Um, And divorce itself is something that, is pretty straightforward. All a divorce uh, does is terminates your marriage and gives you the ability to remarry if you feel like that's something you want to do. Um, The the time delays are usually when you're talking about property disputes or uh, parenting disputes, what we used to call custody and access disputes. Right. So it might actually be easier to get divorced when you're younger and don't have a lot of those things to deal with. How quickly can you get a divorce after you're married? Is there a time you've got to wait? Yeah. So you have to, uh, if you're filing for your for a divorce, you've got to wait a period of two years. You've got to have counselling. There are some exceptions to that so that you can actually um, be exempted from that requirement. But usually you've got to prove that you're separated for a continuous period of 12 months. That can be under the same roof, but that makes it a little more complicated. But as long as, like, if you move back with your parents or you move out of the house with your husband or your wife um, and you're living somewhere else, it's usually pretty easy to establish that you've been separated. You'll get your hearing about two months after that um, and you will be divorced um, within one month of that day. So from the date of filing... In about three months' time, you're probably going to be uh, be divorced. Interesting. We've got messages coming through. Jess says, I was married at 25, divorced at 27. It was the worst thing that's ever happened to me because he ended it with me. I thought I'd failed and had hated myself and the label of being divorced. Then another person says, split from my husband at the age of 23. Best thing I did was getting away from that. So many different opinions on this. Michael, I wanted to ask you about de facto relationships because I feel like a lot of people would be in that situation when they're young. They're not married, but they're in a serious long-term relationship, been living together for years. Could you still have to give up a lot of your assets if you're in that situation? Well, if you've been together for years, then it's probably you share assets um, with your uh, with your partner. Um, so it's dividing the assets between you rather than losing or, or giving them up. Um, in a short marriage, or sorry, in a short relationship, whether it's marriage or de facto, it's unlikely the court's going to do too much um, to property that you've brought in. But obviously, the longer that you're together, if you have children, um, complex business arrangements, then the likelihood is that you are going to end up uh, sharing 
that property with your partner uh, in a separation. De facto, de facto relationships uh, in terms of how we divide property are now treated in exactly the same way as married relationships. Right, okay. And what about COVID? Did we see any increase after the pandemic and lockdowns? That would be interesting if there was a spike in divorces. Um, it, we keep an eye on our, you know, our Facebook and social media analytics, and it was churning away during the uh, the lockdowns. Um, so we knew that, that, you know, there was going to be some activity coming after COVID. It just ramped up massively. Normally, we would see that sort of a spike after winter holidays and and potentially Christmas because people have been around each other for probably a bit too long. Um, after the the lockdowns, particularly, it was crazy times for family lawyers. It's very, very, very interesting stuff. I appreciate your insight into this. Divorce lawyer Michael Tice, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. We've got a lot of messages coming through. We've got Beth from Bathurst saying, divorced at 30, agree 100% with Gloria, leave no stone unturned because the doubts will eat you alive. You'll know you've done the right thing. Andy in Canberra says, I met my husband at 17, married at 21 and divorced at 29. I don't regret our time together, but definitely wish I'd made other decisions prior to getting married and everything is harder with kids involved. Yeah, it's more people than I thought have been through this at a young age. And I guess it makes sense, you know, um, as we as we move on in society, people are deciding that we're not going to put up with stuff anymore. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.